Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Living with Power of Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abijamra, and I want to welcome you again. It is great to be with you. It is Thursday. Every Thursday, we drop another conversation or episode, and we are uh, wrapping up some conversations on fractured faith and just excited to be introducing you shortly to a new friend and a uh, and, uh, pastor, actually, which I've enjoyed talking to pastors in this series because, as many of you know, Fractured Faith, my new book, came out and uh, back in September and really delves into some of the wounds that we suffer in the local church. So I am a fan of the local church. I am a follower of Jesus. I don't think you can be a follower of Jesus without loving the local church. So I'm excited here in a second to talk about his new book and I'll tell you about him in a second. Hey, if you're new to our podcast, welcome. If you've been here before, remember that you can um, leave us a review and anyone can subscribe. That way you know exactly when we drop podcasts. And we'd love to share with you biblical truth for everyday life. And we'd love to talk about faith and culture. And I hope that you find all these things here today. You can find out more about us at livingwithpower.org. Now, let me introduce you to Jeff Lockyer. He is the lead pastor of Southridge Community Church. He is Canadian, and uh, I've spent some time in Canada, enough to know that uh, Niagara is sort of there by New York, and he's in that area, in the Ontario area. He's a former long-distance runner. He's the chair of the Global Leadership Network in Canada and founder of uh, Leaders Village, which he can tell us more about in a minute. But Jeff, you wrote a new book called Finding Our Way, Reclaiming the First Century Church in the 21st Century, which is a book about the church. So I am so excited to have you here today so that we can talk about the church. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I feel like uh, not knowing each other that well, uh, we're sort of spiritual cousins of sorts, it feels like, because you know your book came out really about how to process uh, deconstructing and then reconstructing your faith. Mm. And in a lot of ways, finding our way is about D and to some degree reconstructing a faith community. And so I I think there's a lot of overlap in the way that God's worked in our, our lives and our communities. I agree. And so, yeah, we're going to get into that too. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I have not been shy about talking about some of the problems of some of the churches movement. There's just this weird movement in the church in the United States, at least, and probably in Canada as well in the last 10, 15 years. And I think a lot of your book sort of focuses on that. But before we get into the book, you know, since we are sort of new friends, uh, you know, I've caught bits and pieces here about who you are. We have a common friend, Don, uh, my agent, but tell us a little bit about who you are. You've got a family, you grew up in Canada. Just tell me a little bit about your story and how you came to Jesus. Yeah. So I I live in the Niagara region uh, about an hour from Toronto and about 15 minutes from Niagara Falls for people that just kind of position where I live. I'm Niagara born and raised. I I, uh, went to the University of Toronto uh, for a few years, but outside of that, I've lived in the Niagara region. Uh, I have been pastoring the church that I grew up in since I was a 10-year-old kid uh, for the past just over 24 years. And so it's kind of an interesting story there. Our, Our church was founded in 1980. Uh, by some young families who were in the area and wanted to do church a little bit differently, kind of in a way that would specifically engage and and sort of target their kids. And so there were a lot of kid-centric programs in the in the church uh, in its inception. And uh, fast forward about 15 years to the mid-90s, the pastor wanted to retire, and the leaders of the church at the time had kind of struck out on search committees And so, as I understand it, they were in a board meeting in someone's living room and they kind of looked around at each other and realized that all of them 
at this stage in their lives were in a very similar place professionally. They were all at the place where they were starting to consider handing their family businesses over to their kids. Mm -hmm. And so they got this bright idea that if that was commonly sort of option A in their private lives, why shouldn't that be option A in the church? And were there some young kind of emerging leaders in the church that they could entrust the leadership the leadership of it to? And so uh, they started out with an, uh, kind of an apprentice pastor, a guy by the name of Chris Fowler, who still is on our staff today. And after a year or so of, of him leading on his own, he was kind of a musical arts guy at the time, helped people navigate the, the worship wars back in the mid 90s, hymns to choruses, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he needed help with preaching and teaching. And so uh, on September 1st, 1997, a guy by the name of Michael Krause, who is are still today teaching pastor and myself, we were brought in together to help Chris preach and teach uh, twice a month each. And so we started off then as a bit of a kind of a band of brothers, like a fledgling leadership team. And over the years that our roles kind of specialized and and uh, I became more the, the, the point leader of the group. And uh, one thing has led to another and we can talk a lot about the church from there. Uh, well, I, well, talk, but how, how did you feel this calling to be a pastor? Because th- that seems like such a unique calling. Did, was that something that God just, you know, was clear in, or you'd mentioned a little bit in the afterward in your book, and I'm intrigued with the story, even when yeah. you made that decision to be a pastor, you talked with your dad. So walk me through some of that tension at that time in your life. Yeah. So spiritually, I mean, I prayed the sinner's prayer probably a hundred times at a, at a summer camp when I was 10 years old. Uh, the speaker there had been my fourth grade school teacher. So we had kind of a connected, like a, a relationship before the, the summer camp started. And he was a real hellfire and brimstone guy who terrified me with this message of, 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 of uh, you know, eternal damnation. And so when I was sitting in my top bunk that week at summer camp, I knew two things. I knew, number one, that I did not want to spend my eternity in hell. And number two, the only way I could avoid that was to ask Jesus into my heart. And so yeah. I did that and, uh, you know, was growing up then at that point in this church that I'm now leading. And so I participated in the, the programs in Sunday school and things like that growing up as a kid. Uh, when I went, went away to college, I was more focused on running. You mentioned that earlier. And so uh, spirituality was admittedly not a high priority for me. And by the end of college, when I moved back home, I, I can honestly say I, I didn't like the person I was becoming. Mm. And so I just, I, I couldn't describe it any better than that. I I, I knew that part of my life back in Niagara was going to be to re-engage in our local church. And uh, so I got involved in our student ministry. And as I was involved in our student ministry, God was obviously stirring my heart as much or more uh, as the people that I was helping lead. And uh, there was one day where we had scheduled a speaker and a speaker had canceled. So we needed a last minute speaker. And someone said, hey, you know, why don't you just share about how faith is like running a race? I, I gave this talk as a sort of a last minute sub in. And people really liked it. And so then they asked me to, to do talks with the youth a little bit more regularly. And then that turned into this apprentice pastor at the time, Chris, asked if I would do a talk on Sunday morning. And that was sort of my trajectory into preaching. You got sucked into it. <laughs> I, I kind of got sucked into it. And, and it was around that time, you mentioned this conversation with my dad. So, you know, growing up, my mom was the one who dragged us to church as kids. And my dad sort of always had an excuse not to. And uh, that was always a bit peculiar growing up. 
uh, it never really went there. But at this time, when I was kind of being invited into more vocational ministry, I had a conversation in my dad's, my, my parents' kitchen. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of skeptical. He actually felt like the church was abusing us because they were offering such little pay for all this work that at the time it took to put a sermon together. And so, uh, you know, we had this conversation. I finally said, you know, dad, why aren't you into this? And he told me a story of his day at work, literally like that day. And my dad was a school administrator at a time where the school teachers union was in a labor dispute with the provincial government. And so the teachers at the time were striking. And as an administrator, my dad had to kind of mediate this picket line uh, every day during the strike. And he was located at a school that was in kind of a Bible beltish part of Niagara where the parents at the beginning of the year would all kind of accost them, wondering whether the teachers of their children were Christian teachers because it mattered to them to have good Christian influences. And my dad never knew how to answer that question about whether these teachers were Christian. So it was always kind of awkward. But he told me on this particular day, as he was mediating this this picket line of striking teachers, that these same parents who insisted on these good Christian influences for their kids, they were driving by And if you can believe it, they were throwing tomatoes at the striking teachers. Wow. They were throwing tomatoes at the striking teachers. And my dad looked at me. I'll never forget the look on his face. He said, what would I want anything to do with that? Wow. And I I understood what he was saying. I I kind of resonated, you know, growing up in this church and so much of the church not totally really making a lot of sense to me or at least making sense of who I understood Jesus to be. I felt like that Gandhi quote where he says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I'm not a real like defining moment kind of a guy, but I walked out of my parents' kitchen that day and I felt like the rest of my life would be defined in one of two trajectories. Either I could completely agree with my dad that the church generally did not make a lot of sense of Jesus. And because of that, give up on it completely. And 30 years from then, be in exactly the same place that my dad was. Or I could completely agree with my dad that the church doesn't make enough sense of Jesus, but instead of giving up on it, I could give the best of the rest of my one and only life to it in hopes that 30 years from now, my dad would be where I was. And so I joked with the board at the time when they invited me on staff, I said, listen, like as soon as my dad is in the baptism tank, I'm going to retire. Because that's the only reason I'm doing this. I had this sort of personal mission of sorts (laughs) to make our church or a church make enough sense of the biblical Jesus that a person like my dad would run to him instead of from him. And so since then, I mean, long story short, uh, it was about four years into my ministry life that I got the chance to baptize my father. And uh He shared how he finally understood Ephesians 2, being saved by grace through faith. And it was just an unbelievable, certainly, you know, top three, if not the the, the top kind of ministry highlight of my life. But had kind of a moment in the baptism tank where I looked out and realized, okay, at this point, this is supposed to be my retirement. But there are a lot of other people's dads and moms and kids and coworkers and classmates and friends and family and teammates and neighbors who could enjoy the same thrill that I'm enjoying right now if we kept at this and kept trying to close that Gandhi gap to make at least our local church make enough sense of Jesus that people would run to him and from him instead of from him. And so I I don't know how much, Lena, you'd call that a calling, 
But if I was to describe my sense of how I contribute to the kingdom, it's simply been that for now a quarter century to to contribute to making a church, if not in a broader way to, to contribute to making the church make more and more sense of the person of Jesus, to incarnate Jesus so that more and more people will, in seeing and experiencing the incarnate Jesus through his bride and body and family, they'll run to him instead of from him. Well, well, and so this is great, but when did you kind of sit back and kind of think, man, there's a problem besides this sort of thing that your dad saw, which I think I want to come back to that because I think we're seeing right now Christians who are throwing tomatoes at the culture in some ways. I don't know how the climate is in Canada. I don't know if it's as, as volatile here, but as pretty similar. Yeah. But the COVID thing, I mean, I think the masks, the COVID, the vaccines, I mean, all of these issues, you know, the 2016 elections, I mean, there has been sort of a vitriol in the Christian world of sort of this segment of Christians that seem to be sort of angry. And I think a lot of people who are not part of the church would sort of think of evangelicals as sort of these people who are against a whole lot of things. Was that part of the motivation in writing your book or was it more sort of the other side, which, I mean, as I read the first few chapters too, you talk about, and I, by the way, I resonated so much with it, but it, it, you really talk about what the church is doing wrong. And, and, and can you get into that a bit? How, what led you to write this book? And what, did I get that right? Like, what were you seeing? Sort of, yeah. So the churches that were wrong and you were like, man, this whole idea of vision and mission, you hit the nail on the head in the chapter on vision. I, just talk to us about sort of what you're seeing in, in the American or North American, I should say, church movement. Yeah. So f- first things first, I don't want to appear like I'm some kind of authority or judge of the church. My life and the ministry of what started with some friends of mine and now has blossomed from there has mostly lena been a look at ourselves like mm-hmm. what where where is the gap in how we understand faith in community compared to what what it would look like if we were incarnating jesus to a greater degree yeah. and so it's it's really been about us primarily, although there are themes and trends that apply to to beyond us. And and I said to someone the other day, like my ministry life has really just been one consistent gap analysis of considering like where's the gap, how do we close it? Where's the gap, how do we close it? And my leadership style or or strategy has been nothing more than I call it the bottleneck approach. Like where are we sucking the most right now? <laughs> where where are we the most unlike Jesus? And how can we fix that? Meaning not just talk about it, but actually as ministry leaders, how can we operationalize a change in that? How can we change a policy or a practice or a behavior or a culture or all of the above? How how can we how can we operationalize changing that mm-hmm. so that moving forward, you know, six months from now or whatever, um, we're we're less unlike Jesus, and and so six months from now we're going to evaluate again, and there's going to be a new primary bottleneck. There's going to be a new thing that we suck at the most that is the most unlike Jesus thing about us, and then we're going to focus on changing that. And it's been like you know three to six month eras again and again and again and again and again, including today where. As leaders, we're looking around and saying, what are the most unlike Jesus things about us and what do we need to change? And let's attack those things. And so that's kind of been the the arc of our story that has revolutionized all kinds of different aspects to our ministry, which certainly we, we, we can talk about. Um, 
So the book then is kind of the summary of this quarter century long journey, not as a prescriptive, this is how everyone in the world or in you know <clears throat> North American Western Christianity ought to do church, but more as a descriptive, here's how one local church in the trenches operationalizing and doing community like in real life, this is how one local church is practicing the journey of becoming more like Jesus. That's why the title is called Finding Our Way. It's ultimately about trying to reclaim Jesus' way of life among us in an operationalized mm -hmm. way so that as a community, we can reveal the person and the nature and the essence of Jesus for our surrounding society to a greater degree. So what would you say are the most unlike Jesus things that you've seen in the modern day North American church in the last 10 years? I would say, I'll, I'll say two things. They're sort of the same thing, but they play out at two levels. Um, and, and again, I'll, I'll make the disclaimer that we still, in a lot of ways, wrestle with, with these things. I, I think one of the biggies is that we come to Jesus to meet our need more than we come to Jesus to follow him. So good. And the result of that is that, and I'm painting this admittedly with broad brushstrokes, but the result of that is that the Western church has largely been organized around serving the stresses and the struggles of privileged people. So the, 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 the message series that we offer are, you know, five tips to a happy life or how to experience more meaning and purpose and significance or three keys to a better marriage or how to be a great mom. Or like it's, it's, it's oriented around alleviating the tensions in a privileged bandwidth of people where the invitation of Jesus, among other places in whether it's in Luke 4, where Jesus, you know, reads the Isaiah 40 scroll and says, mm -hmm. you know, I've come to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, release, you know, for the poor and the year of the Lord's favor, et cetera. Or in Philippians 2, where Paul says, be like Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant. And the point is, Jesus was a relinquisher of privilege for the underprivileged. Jesus was... A, a, a person on earth who invested his power in the powerless. And the invitation of Jesus for others was in following him to relinquish and leverage our privilege for those of less privilege to be for the kind of people that Jesus was most for. And so when you look at the, the even the legacy, I would say, of the Western church today in a lot of ways, you know, I want our local church, Southridge Community Church, I want our legacy to be one that increasingly comforts the afflicted to the affliction of the comfortable. Because when I look at Jesus, that's the legacy of Jesus. The reality is that in the Western church, and for so many years, in so many ways, our church, our legacy was one that comforted the comfortable to mm. the alienation and exclusion of the legitimately afflicted. And I think about it totally upside down. The second thing I would say is the way in which that 
ethos or even that theology that I, I don't want to call it the gospel, but how we understand the invitation of Jesus or why we approach Jesus. I think it, it, it then translates into what we actually do, what we operationalize, what we offer in programming and things. And so in a real kind of practical example in our context, when I started in ministry, we were in the process of contemporizing our worship services, making them more hip and culturally relevant, we called it. Well, if you looked at our budget a quarter century ago, we probably invested 75 to 80% of our resources into spiffing up our weekend service. And the remaining like 20, 25% into our midweek kind of community life, family ministry, youth programs and things like that. But all of it was invested into coming alongside and serving the needs and the stresses and struggles of really generally privileged people. Fast forward now a quarter century and over 70% of the operating budget that we steward is invested into fostering the way of life of compassion and justice operationalizing all kinds of initiatives to serve people on the margins. And it's only now like, I think 15 or 18, I'd have to double check, you know, some percentage that's invested in our weekend services. Not that we don't care about our gatherings, but we're so far from being a gathering centric community and attractional model community because we want to operationalize this way of life of being for the people that Jesus was most for. So I would say where I see the church, and again, our church most primarily, where I see the church getting it wrong is, first of all, in how we even approach Jesus and what we understand, you know, we want to get out of him or, you know, he's availing himself for us. And then how we operationalize that. I think that's probably the, the primary place in which we're missing the mark these days. And so, like, you sort of paint this almost like the social justice, right? I mean, when you think of, when you hear that, and you can hear the, some, to be devil's advocate, I mean, you can hear, hear critiques that are going, well, you know, the, you know, the gospel is more than social justice, and so you're all about compassion. But, but I mean, having read your book, I understand that you're more than that. But so, you, you know, you sort of, like, going back and looking at broad pictures in the church, you know, you even in your book, you talk about the seeker-sensitive movement, which you were even giving credit in your life for a lot of the work there, but how that's lost its flavor because it wasn't such a great way to disciple Christians. And I think the debate even in the last um, few years that I've seen play out in the church has been interesting to see because I connected a lot with how you described this this balance, I think, between discipleship and social justice. But the accusation of many who may be more, you know, Bible teaching, discipleship oriented, who don't maybe have a heavy work in in justice issues is that, you know, it's, it's almost like you're turning it into the gospel, the social justice. Yeah, and in a sense, gospel. you're kind of saying it is, and you know, but really it's sort of an outflow of what happens in our hearts. So how do you balance like discipling your people so that they don't look at these good works as just good works, but that really it is, it's almost part of discipleship. And does that make, do you understand what I'm trying to say? I understand well, what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, in our community, we understand holistic acts to biblical Christianity to be about more than compassion and justice. So we seek to gather in the temple regularly and engage in the practices of corporate worship and teaching and things like that. Um, we gather in each other's homes and share lives with sincerity mm -hmm. of heart and care for one another's needs and those kinds of things, as you see in acts too. I would say a few things though. First of all, um, you know, when I come back to, again, Jesus, he, he, 
kind of reading the scroll of Isaiah 40 and who he was predicted to be, there is a being for the least of these essence in the person of Jesus that he invites people into. That, that I think is, is real, that, that there is, I mean, throughout the old Testament and the prophets and there, there is a high, high value on a faith that expresses itself in compassion and justice. So I'll say that at point number one, point number two, though, to your question about discipleship, you know, I look at a college or a university and the way that they educate people, they often do it in three ways, large group lectures, small group seminars, and co-op work terms. And the question is, in our discipleship system, again, as Western churches, we've probably got the large group lecture down. Most of us have probably operationalized the small group seminar where people are subdivided into small groups. What's the co-op work term? And for us, I, I found it fascinating. Years ago, we were teaching through Luke. And in Luke chapter 8, it's somewhere in the middle of Luke chapter 8, there's the parable or the story of Jesus' disciples in the boat. And Jesus is asleep and the storm comes up and they're freaking out and they they wake Jesus up. And in a yawn, he calms the storm and goes back to sleep. And the disciples say, who is this man that the wind and waves obey him? It, it shocked me when I read through that because I thought, these are people who got the large group teaching from, of all people, from Jesus himself. And these are people who got the small group seminar from Jesus as their own small group leader. Can you imagine how spiritually mature you'd think you and I would be if Jesus was our teaching pastor and Jesus was our small group leader? Like we'd be on the end. We'd be getting it right. And yet in spite of that, these disciples were still at a who is this man level faith. The light bulb hadn't gone off. So one chapter later, though, Jesus says, hey, you know, who are people saying I am? And people say, well, you know, some say Elijah, or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter then in Luke 9 says, you are the Christ, the Messiah sent from God. And he knows right away and he knows exactly and clearly and absolutely. And, and he's right. He the, the, Somehow the light bulb has gone on. And it made me wonder, like, what happened, and I'm not saying that Luke recorded these episodes chronologically, but it makes you wonder, like, what happened between the middle of Luke 8, where they had no clue who Jesus was, and the middle of Luke 9, where they knew absolutely who he was? And in Luke 9, 1 and 2, in between those two episodes, it says Jesus sent them out two by two to cast out demons, heal the sick, and proclaim the kingdom of God. He involved them in his mission. And so I feel like in addition to just resembling Jesus from a discipleship perspective, I think that engaging in the way of life of compassion and justice is probably the single best discipleship tool we have in our toolbox. I, I, I don't know if you have studied experiential learning, like learning by doing, but there's that, that saying by Confucius that says, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. And and how much discipleship, for those of us who are big on discipleship, how much discipleship are we missing out on because we ignore the high value of compassion and justice? Final rant I'll give is on the evangelism side, because some people push back and say, oh, you know, you're you're not about winning souls. You're about social gospel. Well, if you come back to Acts 2, where, you know, thousands are, you know, accepting their message each day and, and, and joining in the church, like what was happening in Acts 2? Because I would argue that it wasn't the watching world that was responding to what was happening in the temple. 
The watching world wasn't in the temple. And it wasn't what was happening in their homes that the watching world was responding to. I would say that in Acts 2, the one thing that the watching world could actually see was the selling of their possessions and the serving of those in need. It was when their faith came to life. And as a, as a church community, they incarnated Jesus in their world. It was when they practiced what they preached. I heard one pastor say that it was their good deeds that created in their society a goodwill that opened people up to the good news. That good deeds create goodwill that open people up to the good news. And so for a person who's really evangelistically focused, that's great. That's certainly core to the heart of God. The question is, how in our culture is our world reached? And I would say that we are far away from a tell me kind of relationship. And at least in Canada, we are at, you know, kind of they call this post-Christian culture. We are in a show me kind of uh, environment. And I'm sure in the United States, there's some similarity there as well, where people want to see it and experience it in order to buy into it and engage in it themselves. Well, true. And I mean, you give statistics at the beginning of the book, which are also so sobering, like like most of the people who are not in the church don't think happy thoughts about churches. And I would say even in the last three years, probably even worse. I mean, we're known for how loudly we're yelling about issues. And I think that, do you remember those statistics about, like, they think of us as judgmental and, and, yeah, you know. there, there, there was a survey I recorded, a couple of Barna surveys that I recorded. One was um, out of the UK and they asked people, you know, what word uh, came to mind the most when you think of Christians? And it was something in the neighborhood of, you know, 87% associated with Christians with being uh, hypocritical, 89% with being judgmental, 91% with being anti-gay. And it's just like, when you compare those statistics, you know, right. you might think that your church is doing great because there are butts in seats on Sunday morning. But if you're evaluating the success of your church, according to the degree that it's incarnating Jesus in the world, again, the real question is, how big is that Gandhi gap? How big is the yeah. gap between what the watching world sees in and among you and how they understand Jesus? There was another uh, survey done in the U.S., similar. It was a, done among millennials uh, where they were uh, asked to describe their impressions of the church. And uh, in that uh, survey, they were asked to pick images that that represented Christians or represented the church. And the top two images that emerged were a finger wagging preacher and a megaphone shout, shouting protester. And you th- and this was before COVID. So you think like in all of the vitriol and polarization of our world today, now with COVID and masks and vaccines and all this, I mean, it's it's just gone in a worse direction where it feels like the gap is only growing as opposed to the church rallying around simply revealing more of Jesus to our surrounding society. Well, and I think this is why like this consumeristic, you know, like you're right, like churches have grown, there's mega churches, multi-campus numbers, how many baptisms, how many, I mean, it's easy to tell those numbers, but I think the truth, you know, that like even now with the tragedies happening among leaders that are falling apart, abusive powers, on and on, there's scandals and then churches blowing up, like, those churches, I mean, a lot of them aren't sustainable because they haven't really been building a church. They've been building an organization. They've been building, I mean, I don't know how much of it is, is I mean, there may, I mean I'm not saying like every, 
you know, mega church that has blown up doesn't have true disciples, but that model that is centered around the leader who is modeling a life of what you said earlier, which is, you know, the privilege that continue to grow, whether it's richer or greater or more influence, that's not the gospel. Like at the end of the day, it, it might be something you might say that's a success business story, that's, but, but, but they're really, they're, these churches are imploding because they're not gospel centered. And so they're living out a vision. But as you very clearly say, even in chapter one on vision is they're not living out the vision of Christ for the church, which I just thought that wow. was so simple, but so such an important clarity. Like what is Christ's vision for the church? And I think you've just painted it incredibly well. I, I want to fast forward a little in your book because you do hit up some things that I just thought were so good. And at the beginning, you sort of warn it, you know, people, I think even the person who wrote your foreword is like, you know, he's going to offend some people. And at first I didn't th- think a lot of the stuff was offensive, but I can see why some people might misunderstand you. I love the section about small group because I have a love hate. Rela- I mean, I kind of have a more of a hate relationship with small groups. I find them to be such a waste of time. And you sort of allude to that. I mean, groups of people that gather and, I mean, if you don't really have a, I don't know, I just feel like a lot of Christians are burnt out on small groups because nothing ever gets accomplished in them in some ways. What, like, how has your church handled this transition? You, you changed the way you do small group at one point. Yeah, so I'll back up a step or two based on what you were saying just, just before that, because I, I think, again, the heart of most Western churches is good in its intent. Mm-hmm. But, but what I've noticed you know, especially when you talk about the, the, the seeker movement, the attractional model and things like that. What started out as a very Jesus-like motivation, mm-hmm. that is to serve and reach people, became a medium that was then the message of we as a church and by proxy God are here to serve you. Mm. Jesus never said, come and be served by me. He never said that. Right. And yet our desire as a church to serve people in the name and in the spirit of Christ then sends that message. So I picked up on this years ago when when early in, in, in our ministry life, you know, we were doing a lot of really exciting and at that level, effective attractional stuff. And I had a bunch of neighbors who were interested and curious and tracking and kind of getting into the hype and, and ended up in the baptism tank. So I probably baptized six or eight of my neighbors and it was amazing and cool. And and after a couple of years, though, we started to kind of call people to the way of Jesus. And all of a sudden it was as if they'd never heard that before. Hmm. And they really wanted nothing to do with that. And it it forced me again. I'm not judging the church out there. We're looking inward at our, our own failures. It caused me and us as leaders to say, like, what were we inviting people into before if it wasn't the way of Jesus? And the honest answer was we were inviting them to be served by Jesus, not to follow him. We were inviting them to be served by Jesus, not to follow him. So now fast forward to your direct question about small groups. Like small groups is a program that churches run, but if you orient them around, this is a program that will serve you, well, now every person signing up for them is signing up to be served. Yeah. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, for even I, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve. And so it's it's only if the program, and I talk about this a lot in the book, like you, what you need to be operationalized, uh, operationalizing in your church are programs that depend on and are built around devotion, not around consumerism. So 
a small groups ministry is just one example of that where you can subdivide your church into small groups, but if everyone is showing up for what they get out of it, that's going to be a flop. If everyone is showing up for devotion reasons so that they can be more devoted and they can stimulate deeper devotion in other people, well, all of a sudden you can have really spectacular spiritual transformation because we've said for years in the small groups movement that life change happens best in relationship. So you can see the magic of small groups. You can also see the frustration of small groups, but it all depends on how you initially frame it. Are you framing it as a program for someone to consume or are you framing it as a function of their devotion that they can engage in to stimulate other people's growth? Right. And so even like that pressure of being a small group leader, that is the shepherd of the group and the pressure that goes along with it. You even talk about that, which I thought was so true. Like people get freaked out with that role, but you sort of almost, I don't know, maybe you still have leaders, but you sort of create this more communal, we're here to serve one another sort of. It is. It's a far more facilitating role because everyone has to have skin in the game to make this work. Yeah. It's, it's truly reciprocal and mutual instead of more, one directional, you know, where we talk about right. the, the small group leader as the, the miniature version of the pastor. And that's how we, in an Exodus 18 way, we distribute pastoral cares through these small group leaders who are pastors. And in a context like our church, we've got about 100 small group leaders. There is an element where the small group leader is the conduit for care. But even that care is provided in a mutual member ministry way, not in a small group leader provided way, because these groups haven't been designed based on consumerism, they've been based on devotion. How do you guys go about finding where the most needy and marginalized are that you can serve? You know, like, how do you guys vote? Do you, how do you, there's so much need in the world. And I know you talk about the difference between like local and global, and there's sort of a responsibility to both, you know, Christ, you know, of course tells us that we're to go to all the ends of the world, starting here and going to, you know, that uh, verse in Acts uh, that talks about going to, um, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the world. But but how do you guys make, how do you guys move? How do you, how do you see the spirit leading? Um, do you, yeah, I mean, yeah, how, how so do you years ago, that? years ago, when we thought we were an amazing church, we're growing 35, 40% year over year over year over year and have all kinds of great stories to brag on to my pastor buddies. A friend of ours, who's now a senior leader here at Southridge, uh, gave us a book by a pastor from Little Rock, Arkansas. And the big idea of the book or the question, the basic question that it asked was if your church up and disappeared, would anyone in your surrounding society even notice? And we went like in an instant from thinking our church was all that in a bag of chips to wondering if we were even a church. Like it was, it was that convicting and long story short, instead of addressing our uh, population, like our congestion issues with further expansion, we sold our building and relocated our church to a mile of the downtown core of our city. And the goal was to put ourselves in proximity to people and especially people in need. One thing led to another after a couple of years. And in this kind of original location, we ended up opening what today for the last 16 years has been the Niagara region's largest homeless shelter in our church building. So you want to talk about changing the flavor of your church. Like, For 16 years, our church hasn't been a place where Christians gather. It's been a place where the homeless live and Christians show up every once in a while. Like it's, it's a totally different feel, the parking lot, the, like the window that I'm looking out of right now, you know, as, as residents that are kind of hanging out and, and, uh, you know, waiting for dinner time. And so it's, it's, it's totally been a game changer. Fast forward again to when we became multi-site 
instead of talking about how we were going to like distribute teaching and are we going to do video teaching or this kind of stuff, people right away started to ask, what will the shelter equivalent be in those other Southridge locations? And so at that time, we sort of invented this phrase called an anchor cause where every one of our Southridge locations is defined by a core initiative of compassion and justice that makes a difference in the part of Niagara where it finds itself. Now, to your question, you know, how do you discern what your anchor cause should be? There's a lot of prayer and consultation that goes into that. We consult with government officials. We get political and census data. And, you know, it really narrows down in a process that at some point even involves partners where we don't right away dive into something. We'll partner with a few agencies and kind of give God the, the, the recognition that he's already at work in this in this locality. And as we kind of feel out where he's been at work, then we can get a feel for where the gaps are and the programs that we could uniquely build as a local church to help fill some of those gaps. So that's been what we've been doing where we've got now an anchor cause here in St. Mm. Catharines focusing on homelessness. We've got an anchor cause in Vineland that focuses on migrant uh, seasonal farm workers, fruit farm workers uh, from the Caribbean. And uh, an anchor cause in Welland, which is about 20 minutes south of St. Catharines, that focuses on uh, low-income families and kids at risk. And so, you know, that's kind of created our, our way of ministry. The question then is, you know, how does that expand, you know, nationally, for example, where we're starting to really stare at the face of the church's relationship with First Nations people, or internationally, globally, with the global poor, which we've done primarily through a partnership with Compassion International and its local affiliate here, Compassion Canada. That's amazing. I honestly think that's so cool. How has these changes affected, A, your church membership, and B, your relationships with the city of Niagara and the area you're in? Well, I'll answer them in inverse order. Like, (laughs) at this point, we're a known, respected, at least appreciated presence in our community. Civic officials mm-hmm. will recognize us publicly as a significant social asset. Uh, the The mayor of the city of St. Catharines, uh, he's a two-term mayor, and in the first term, he ran on a campaign to turn St. Catharines into a compassionate city. And on his Compassionate City website, he quoted this friend of his from Southridge who was teaching about compassion. And that friend of his at Southridge was our outreach pastor. So, you know, when you when you start with this conviction years ago of if your church disappeared, would anyone even notice? And now you're like influencing the mayors and how they campaign. And you're recognized among civic leaders as a significant social asset. You know, that's been game changing in in how in our ability to incarnate Jesus in our part of the world. The effect I would say that it's had on our people is it's completely revolutionized how we understand the way of Jesus that we're invited into. And it's no longer about us. We we just we're in the middle of a kickoff series right now that again is recasting this vision. The series is called Live Beyond Yourself. Because when it comes to the invitation of Jesus, it's not about our stresses and struggles, even in COVID. Most of our community is a tremendously privileged people. And throughout the pandemic, we've tried to increase increasingly default to relinquishing and leveraging our privilege for those of less privilege, because that's what we understand to be the way of Jesus being for the kinds of people that he was most for. And so over the years... Did you lose people over some of the changes? 
Oh, every, every one of those <laughs> bottleneck approach changes that we made every six months or every two years or every five years uh, would result in certain people, you know, being too uncomfortable to stick around or, or, right. or the change being too incompatible with what they wanted out of God or how they understood the gospel. And so they, they moved along. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, when, when you have to look at the impact that your church is having to see your church increasingly comforting afflicted people while at the same time causing some affliction to legitimately comfortable people actually kind of affirms that you're increasingly yeah. leaning into the Jesus way. That's sort of a good indicator that you're following Jesus in my books. These are good, challenging things, Jeff. I, I'm really enjoying this. And I, I'm sad to say it is time to come to a close in our conversation, but I'll tell you one thing, the older I get in the faith, the more I find value. And having grown up in independent churches, the more I see such a value in denominational belonging from an accountability perspective, from a, all of these issues that you bring up, I see more and more the need for that. And I, I, I'm just grateful more and more to churches who have over the years and over time continued, you know, and been able to work through these difficult things and, and land on the way of, of Christ. And so your book, man, is challenging. It's rich. I'd like to give two of your book away to people who are listening. And I think uh, if you had any questions about what Jeff said, and, 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 and I think the book will give a lot more insight. So two people just email me, ask for the book. The first two will get the book. Jeff, where can people connect with you? Do you have a website or how can they reach you? Yeah, so as a local church, um, we have a, a leadership development ministry now that is kind of the landing place for people who are tracking with the book and tracking with our, our story and our approach to ministry. So that's called The Leaders Village. We're about to launch the website, which is leadersvillage.ca. You can follow us on social media at Leaders Village on any platform. Personally, I'm, I'm uh, not as much of a social media person, although I am on Twitter, so you can find me at Jeff Lockyer on Twitter. Uh, but you could email me directly uh, at southridgechurch.ca is uh, our, our website, southridgechurch.ca, and uh, you'll find my email there and uh, can, can get in touch with me there if you, if you want directly. Well, I, just, I just would want to say, Lena, like, I, I so appreciate you including me in this conversation. And to me, what, what binds our hearts together is this understanding that part of the sanctification journey personally or corporately as a church community is the process of deconstruction and reconstruction. And so that's where I'm excited to, to talk with you on our Finding Our Way podcast, because really you're modeling the personal version of this. And I'm leading here at Southridge, the corporate, the collective version of this. And it kind of has, has made us kindred spirits in that journey. That's good. I really thank you and appreciate your time. This went longer than I thought, but I thought the conversation was rich and useful for me. And I, I'm grateful for you, Pastor. And Hey, uh, for those of you listening, we'll be back every Thursday. Just remember to check out the resources at livingwithpower.org. If you have any questions for me or if you want to email me for a copy of Jeff's book, it's lena at livingwithpower.org. Remember, Thursday nights is our Facebook Live community. Go to Facebook, go to Living With Power, and I will be uh, teaching live tonight. So I hope you guys will show up and uh, have a great day. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's where you're going to find your hope and your peace in this life. I'll see you next week.